This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor. Uh, furthermore, Paul. Paul, <laughs> yeah. how are you doing? I'm doing good. We got back in the rhythm. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was listening to the old episodes and realized I am really bad at doing something I said I was going to do. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was ready for you. I've had some coffee, so I was on my toes, ready for whatever <laughs> you threw at me. So, yeah. No, I'm doing well. Uh, as we discussed a little bit before we started recording, you know, finished up a, a rough little stretch at work. So I'm just happy to be back in the world of books and, and where I kind of belong. Yeah, this peaceful, lovely place. Yep. The, so I'm going to I'm gonna just jump right in. And before you even have a chance to ask me, because this, this kind of plays in, what have I been reading? I finished Anthony Trollope's The Warden last mm-hmm. night. Have you read that yet, Paul? I haven't. It's high on my list of things that I'd like to get to. So what did you think of it? I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I loved every character. I loved the story. I loved the conflict. I loved the amiable, very wise, omniscient narrator. (laughs) You know, the way they kind of do Mm -hmm. things back in Victorian time. I adored the book. And it is kind of about a, an older gentleman who has a job as being a warden. He takes care of 12 old men, according to an old will. And it starts to come out that maybe the will is not being handled the way that it's supposed to, that it was set up for the benefit of these beneficiaries, you know, uh, hundreds of years ago. But in that time, the property has become so valuable that it's actually the warden himself who is really benefiting from the will. Uh, because the, the will's set up in such a way that the whatever's ec- extra goes to the warden, you know, to help them out for their, their charity. But now it's just a really, really good, lush job. Well, the warden is not a man to just take something that he doesn't feel is his. And so he does start to feel guilty. And as it goes along, you tell that he's maybe kind of like you and me. <laughs> he wants a quiet life. Right. And, th- and this distress, you know, the public kind of outcry and the the sense that you know people don't don't respect him but also that maybe he can't even respect himself really starts to get to him and there's a part where he goes and he's waiting in London and he gets to a he's he's just waiting in a room and there's a a couch and some coffee and a book and it's I can't remember the exact word I did mark it but I I won't take the time to find it but he says something like is there anything more heavenly than a couch a book and a cup of coffee. (laughs) And so what you're saying there, I mean, that's his moment of peace and Mm -hmm. he's going to go and grab it as quick as he can. But yes, I, I adored this book. I, it's the first part of the Barsetshire Chronicles or sorry, the Chronicles of Barsetshire, uh, the warden book one. And the thing that I'm really encouraged by is that there were a couple of unsolicited opinions on Twitter where I got, well, that is the worst Trollope book to start with. Yeah. And I kind of thought, well, I don't know why you're saying that as far as, is it because I won't get to know Anthony Trollope? Is it because it's terrible? Is it because I'll not read anything else? But I kind of thought, well, if this is the worst, mm-hmm. I'm so excited for the rest because, they, and I think it was that just like, no, you really don't get a sense as to where his heights. Right. And I'm thinking, oh, this is, this is wonderful. Uh, but yeah, very, 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 very good. Would strongly recommend that you get to it as soon as you can. I'm excited to hear that. I actually traded in some books a few weeks ago, and then I was walking around the used bookstore, you know, with a little bit of credit, 
And I grabbed that one and the second one in that series. And I've never mm-hmm. read any Trollope at all. So Me either. This was my first. Yeah, that's exciting because I had seen, I don't know if it was on your feed or if people had seen the picture that I posted or whatever, but I had heard very similar things about the warden, you know, and so I was kind of like, oh, maybe I made a misstep and got the wrong one. So that is very good to hear. Well, and one way that I did it, so I I had started it twice before. And while I was enjoying it, it's there's maybe a bit of a of a hurdle at the very beginning to just you know it's a different style it, it, than I was used to. It's kind of like rereading, you know, getting back to Shakespeare. It takes a bit to get into the rhythm again, mm-hmm. even if you've been there before. I think there was also a lot of the legal ease and things that were going on with the will. So it took a little bit, but the way that I finally got into it and really started to adore it was on Audible, almost, I think five of the six books are free. They're included with your membership. And the reader, Timothy W., I should have looked it up. I know it's Timothy W. The, the rest of the name is kind of scraped off by the, only on Audible. <laughs> right. The included, so I can't, I, did, I never saw the name, uh, but I'm sure I could find it. But Timothy W. is an exceptional reader. And what I would do is I would sit down and I would open up my book and I would listen and read at the same time. And I, I just, I, I loved it. It was one of my favorite reading experiences of the year. And I've had some really, really good reading experiences this year. So I would recommend if you get a chance to, to read it, to read it. But maybe, maybe also consider uh, giving the Timothy W yeah. <laughs> uh, reading uh, a go. Because he does the rest of them as well. And I just can't wait. I've told you, I've used that exact same strategy on Ulysses and a few Mm -hmm. other books, and I love doing that. I think, I mean, it might work for every book, but especially for certain books, I think that's a really smart way to do it. And it kind of just helps immerse you and gives you little insights into things that you might not not might not otherwise pick up on so mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's such a great performance quality if you get a good performer who can read and yeah it might be a little different than i would read it myself certain characters might sound different but i just loved it and if you don't mind let me let me find a just a small passage oh, i'd love it um there is a a character in the book who just is really kind of awful <laughs> um he's the archdeacon grantley and i'm not going to say too much about why he's awful or or give you any more of my um, opinions on him or who he is. But uh, at the end of the book, and I'm not spoiling anything, this is just more about the tone. The narrator says, And here we must take leave of Archdeacon Grantley. We fear that he is represented in these pages as being worse than he is. But we have had to do with his foibles and not with his virtues. We have seen only the weak side of the man and lacked the opportunity of bringing him forward on his strong ground. That he is a man somewhat too fond of his own way and not sufficiently scrupulous in his manner of achieving it, his best friends cannot deny. That he is bigoted in favor, not so much of his doctrines as of his cloth, is also true. And it is true that the possession of a large income is a desire that sits near his heart. Nevertheless, the archdeacon is a gentleman and a man of conscience. He spends his money liberally and does the work he has to do with the best of his ability. He improves the tone of society of those among whom he lives. His aspirations are of a healthy, if not of the highest kind. Though never an austere man, he upholds propriety of conduct by both example and precept. He is generous to the poor and hospitable to the rich. In matters of religion, he is sincere and yet no Pharisee. He is an earnest and yet no fanatic. On the whole, the Archdeacon of Barchester 
is a man doing more good than harm, a man to be furthered and supported, though perhaps also to be controlled, and it is matter of regret to us that the course of our narrative has required that we should see more of his weakness than his strength. I love it. I I know that can be very annoying and cloying to some people, but I, I again, I loved these characters, and I love that the narrator can kind of uh, present them in this slight way as having a much richer life than even we get here. Yeah. And it just shows a little bit of the generosity of spirit of Trollope's narrator. I have no idea about Trollope the man. I don't know. He Maybe he was just a wonderful, just grandfatherly, you know, loving figure. Or maybe this is all an act, but he acts it well if it yeah. is. Yeah. And I, I adored the book, so. Well, that's great. I mean, that goes back to something we talked about a few episodes ago where when, when you're starting a new author, I think it was in the Cormac McCarthy episode where do you start with their masterpiece <laughs> and then all you have left is the lesser thans? Right. Or does it make more sense to start with something that maybe is still solid, but not their, their most well-known or not their masterwork? And it sounds like in this case, maybe we're approaching it the right way. I, I wonder if it's because they just find so much joy in some of the others that they worry that if someone starts with the warden, they'll think they've done Trollope and right. move on to something else and yeah. never get to the best. But like I say, that just encourages me because I thought the warden was fantastic. It also is book one of the uh, the Chronicles of Barshashir or whatever, Barshashir, uh, whatever a sequence that was supposed mm-hmm. to be. It is book one of six. So I, I feel okay in starting there and not in like book six. But No, I mean, I agree. I, one of the things that's kept me away from Trollope is just being kind of overwhelmed with where to start, which books are in which series. Do I need to own all 14 of this sequence and all six of this sequence? And <laughs> so that's kind of when I saw that it was book one, I kind of just went for it because I was like, it may not be the best starting place, but it's a starting place. And it's it also very like, short. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't hurt either. Very short. Yeah. I think all the rest of them are quite long. This one was like 210 pages in my volume. So yeah. All right. Well, I took up enough time. Paul, what have you been reading? Yeah, well, you know, due to the aforementioned uh, work struggles, I won't say it's been my strongest little stretch of reading, but I recently finished a a series. So I'm going to count that. It's the Copenhagen Trilogy by Tova uh, Ditlifsen. You know, you've probably seen that a, a lot around. It's been highly touted by a lot of people. And so I finally got around to that. And boy, it's excellent. Comprised of three books, obviously, Childhood, Youth, and Dependency. And so, you know, I read a little bit about her biography, but I didn't actually know anything going into it. Throughout her adult life, you know, she really struggled with things like alcohol and drug abuse and was even admitted to a psychiatric hospital several times. So I won't say that these are light reads again, surprise, surprise, (laughs) but they start out, especially the first book, Childhood, does start out as kind of more of a straight, relatively straight, just a childhood narrative. They're all memoirs, obviously. And so the first one touches a lot on her childhood and just her growing love of art and literature and poetry. I was reading a review of it that said, she dishes out boilerplate tribulations of the budding aesthete. She scrounges for books beyond the mealy syllabus of the parental bookshelf, has her wistful juvenilia discovered and mocked by her brother, fails to connect with her firebrand friend. So in some ways, it's it's a very much a coming of age story, but she's a really good writer. And I was just going to read this one little section that talks a little bit about she's at the library. And it's something that I think maybe a lot of listeners to this podcast have maybe dealt with where maybe a bit precocious, trying to read above your level and having adults basically tell you, you know, that those aren't the books for you. You need to go over to this Mm -hmm. section. So talking about the librarian, she is tall and slim and pretty with dark, lively eyes. Her hands are big and beautiful, and I regard them with a certain respect because it's said that she can slap harder than any man. 
She's dressed like my teacher, Miss Clausen, in a rather long, smooth skirt and a blouse with a low white collar at the neck. But unlike Miss Clausen, she doesn't seem to suffer from an insurmountable aversion to children. On the contrary, I'm placed at a table with a children's book in front of me, the title and author of which I've fortunately forgotten. I read, Father, Diana has had puppies. With these words, a slender young girl, 15 years old, came storming into the room, where in addition to the councilman, there were, etc., page after page. I don't have it in me to read it. It fills me with sadness and unbearable boredom. I can't understand how language, that delicate and sensitive instrument, can be so terribly mistreated, or how such monstrous sentences can find their way into a book that gets into the library, where a clever and attractive woman like Miss Mollerup actually recommends it to defenseless children to read. So I, I just like that part. I mean, not all of the book is is, is kind of light as that, but I, I like it. It really does a good job of capturing that feeling where you're reading something that's been assigned to you or that is supposedly good for you. And even as a lover of language, you're just like, no, this is not what I'm looking for. Anyway, so that the first one, like I said, is more about that. The second volume, Youth, gets into her as she grows up. She starts to work a series of unappealing, dead-end jobs. And she's also trying to work at her poetry on the side and trying to find a way to get published. And unfortunately, she increasingly relies on relationships to do that, often with older men. So there's another quick quote. I desire with all my heart to make contact with a world that seems to consist entirely of sick old men who might keel over at any moment before I myself have grown old enough to be taken seriously. So it's really interesting how she's trying to get into this world. But again, it's something we could probably all relate to. It's, it's all about who you know. So she has to compromise some of the things that she would like to do, make some very questionable choices and kind of leads to difficulties later in life. Um, and then the, the third book, Dependency, is, is where it does get very dark. Hmm. Unfortunately, having read her biography, I didn't read it before, so it, it's even darker when you know how things end up. But it deals a lot with she does get end up with this man who deals with some of her dependency issues because she gets addicted to some different drugs and things. And he basically uses that to control her. And, you know, it does get pretty dark at the end. But overall, you know, it's just a really, really good series. I can see why everybody was talking about it. And, you know, I would definitely say if you're in the mood for something like that, it, it's something you should pick up. So did you read the one that came out here in, in the, in the States, the FSG book, or did you import it and get the, uh, yeah, I read the FSG. It was the one where they were all collected in the hardback. Um, I yeah. thought about getting the three separate, but I decided to get it in one nice volume. I, I felt like I'd heard enough good things from trusted folks to kind of <laughs> take the plunge and go for the hardback, and I'm I'm glad I did. Yeah, so. Nice. Yeah, you can import. I don't think that's available in the States as individual volumes, but I think you can import some from other places, though you can also import the full trilogy and Penguin Modern Classics from the UK. Mm. But yeah, that FSG volume is was really nice. I haven't read it yet. Uh, I, I'm reading things like The Warden, Paul. You know, not <laughs> right. I know. I mean, and to be honest, I that was one where. Do you ever sometimes just go into a book knowing very little about it, but based only mm -hmm. on like I'm not usually somebody who follows the buzz necessarily, but it's more recommendations of people who I've consistently seen over the years have a taste that's very similar yeah. to mine. And so I don't even know really when I started this that I knew it was a memoir. Maybe I did, but I, I just kind of knew that it was a translated work that was getting rave reviews from people I trust. And I, I went into it fairly blind. And so by the time I got to the end, I was honestly kind of surprised by the fact that it was this, you know, pretty <laughs> depressing memoir in a lot of ways, <laughs> especially by the end. But boy, yeah, it's it's powerful. And, you know, I have no regrets at all. It's really good.
No, it's one that I've had. I, I've had it. I think I got an early copy of it, and I, but I haven't read it yet. I want to, and, and you're making it more clear that I need to. Yeah. I've heard that it's pretty important to just kind of an, an eye-opening well done. So there's a bit of that surprise and pleasure in reading it, but mm-hmm. also eye-opening and important. So yeah, absolutely. Well, all right, Paul, here we are. You and I are sitting down to record an episode about a publisher this time around. And I couldn't start with anyone. I mean, I have a lot of publishers that I love and adore, but I started a podcast back in 2012 about NYRB Classics specifically about them, just reading their books and going through them. I've, I think I've reviewed a hundred or so on my blog. I look at everything that they release with complete and utter trust that it's going to be wonderful. And more often than not, it is, I love NYRB classics. And so we chose them to be, or maybe I chose, maybe I forced it upon <laughs> you. Maybe you're like, I kind of hate NYRB yeah, classics. Let's, let's let it out, Paul. Let's let it right. out. They're going to be listening. No, so, uh, <laughs> no, dra- no drama this time. I am completely on board. <laughs> oh, they're wonderful. And they're wonderful people to follow and to engage with online. Their books are, are quite varied. They have fiction from all, a lot of languages, as well as a lot of different time periods. They have a lot of really interesting nonfiction about, like, of course, things that we would might expect. World War II memoirs are kind of a big thing, or World mm-hmm. War I memoirs, and they're they're really good. They're not. I've never felt the fatigue from them. They have also books about gardening and about just nature and people who go out for walks. And I mean, there's a whole bunch, as well as covering some authors. They have quite a big collection of say Robert Valser or Henry Green they have almost all of his out there's just one that they don't and then they have a lot of Sybil Bedford you know they have they, mm-hmm. they kind of pick up on authors and over the years drop out the books as they get the rights or the ability to publish them and so it's just they're so fun to follow and so I wanted to talk to, today to you about NYRB Classics and about your experience with them. And then we're going to talk about just a few of their specific books now, uh, but I'll start here. We could go on forever about this topic and we could pull out probably 50 books each and still not feel satisfied about where we got to and whether we were able to talk about all of our favorites. And so we have really worked to be disciplined and we're each going to be talking about three of our favorite NYRB classics books that we would like to recommend and that's it. I know. And, and listeners, I want you to appreciate how hard that was to do. I think we need some brownie <laughs> points because, yeah, I was yeah. I had piles and piles and I was shuffling and shifting. And mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I was changing mine up until the very end of the day yesterday. Mm-hmm. So I finished the warden and went to went to look at my piles again and thought, okay, how am I going to do this? Yeah. Which child am I going to abandon? <laughs> exactly. But we're, we have a little bit of solace in that we'll do this again on NYRB Classics and we'll be able to talk about some of the other ones. Go ahead, Paul, tell me a little bit about your experience with the publisher. This can be reminiscence, you know, like the first time you ever laid eyes on an NYRB classics book. Was it, was it love at first sight or. Yeah. (laughs) I was trying to remember exactly how I got into it. And if I'm honest, I think it might've very well been your, your podcast. Um, I might've had them on my radar before that, but I really do think you, you were very formative in in some of my passion for them because you and I remember your brother would sometimes mm-hmm. go through and you would read just from their catalog and read descriptions and just say, that one sounds good. That one, you know, I want to get it, but not right <laughs> away. And 
I was sitting there taking notes and marking them on Amazon or whatever I was using at the time. And I, I do think a lot of that, I'll be curious to see how many today, if any, we have overlap mm-hmm. for one thing, just because we have similar tastes, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of my original tastes were formed by your podcast. So yeah, I mean, I think what you said is what really appeals to me is they're so eclectic. It's like when you walk into a bookstore that you know is so well curated that you could basically pick up almost anything off their shelves. And even if you, on the cover copy, don't find anything that's especially reaches out and grabs you, you just have that trust. Like they said, it's good. I think it'll be good. And that's how I feel about them. When I'm walking down the aisles of a bookstore and I see that little distinctive rainbow colored cover, I get a little thrill still. And I will reach out and see which one it is. And if I don't have it, there's a pretty good chance it's going to end up on my (laughs) final pile. So to your point, it's just that idea of the curation, the care they take, the curiosity they take about the world that, you know, there's other countries represented. There's all kinds of various ways of looking at the world. And I don't know, as an omnivorous reader, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a press that does a better job of just scattering out all these little gems that you just never know what you're going to get into, but it's always going to be some kind of treat. Yeah, they have a book called Good Doctoring, which is actually written by a doctor about how to be a good doctor. I mean, wow. it's it's very eclectic, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, and the thing that I love about it is I would never go and read that book ever just on my own. I would never think it would apply to me. I would never think it would be well done. Mm-hmm. But the reason that they picked it wasn't because they were like, oh, some of our readers are really going to be interested in how to be a good doctor. It's because the personality there and the writing is so strong that it doesn't matter what they're writing about. You feel enriched, you feel engaged, and you feel like you're benefiting by sitting down and listening to someone who is so good at articulating what they love and what is important beyond subject and, and more about being able to get into that headspace. I, I, I love that they, they tend to do that kind of stuff and, and throw these little curveballs. And yeah, sometimes I realize that it isn't so much, these are classic books that have been read by millions. I mean, just this last month, they released a book called Storm by George R. Stewart, mm-hmm. where it's about a storm. I mean, the, the, it follows a storm. And I'm like, wow, how did they find this thing? Well, it was pretty famous. You know, it's the reason that we name storms today. It, oh, it wow. really is. And it's also the storm in that in that book is called Mariah. <laughs> so it is where Lerner and Lowe got, they call the wind Mariah. Oh, you know, wow. so it was, it was pretty well known in its day. And it's George R. Stewart who wrote Earth Abide. So it's not, you know, I'm the one who's kind of out of it by not knowing about it sooner. But at the same time, it does always feel like they're uncovering these little hidden treasures that would otherwise just be lost. Right. No, that's that's something else. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's how I feel, too. It's a lot of these, you know, more and more there are some publishers who are looking at backlisted catalogs and trying to pull mm-hmm. things out of obscurity. But at least as far as I know, they were one of the first to really do it. Like that was their mission and their goal. That was kind of, you know, what they set out to do. And just the thought yeah. of some of these things fading away is just heartbreaking. And so I love that part too. It feels like everyone they pull out, it's just like, you know, who knows what could have happened when you read about the, you know, the library at Alexandria burning down and all this lost <laughs> knowledge. I mean, you know, it's not quite that dramatic, but it's the idea that if not for them, maybe some of these books would have just disappeared under the waves and never been heard from mm-hmm. again. Well, and we had like things like Penguin Classics. Mm-hmm. And I love Penguin Classics. Uh, they do quite an eclectic mix as well, but they do feel different. There's a different 
there's a different vibe behind each of them. And I went in and met with NYRB Classics folks once. I sat down and talked with Edwin Frank, who who's the publisher and who runs, you know, kind of the the editorial eye. And he was talking to me about how it, how it came about as very much, a, hey, let's look at these older books that are no longer in print and figure out what needs to be put in print. There's more to it. And he talks about it in some YouTube videos and things as well. So I'm not going to try to poorly state what the whole ethos behind it all was and, and how they all got started. But, uh, you know, it started back in, I think, 1999. They came out with some of their first books. They actually numbered their spines back then. And I have one. I found one at a used bookstore that was the numbered spine. I actually pulled it out to have it, but now I'm not seeing it right here with me. It's a Henry James one. Mm. I don't know, Spine 11 or something like that. Kind of like the Criterion Collection. Yeah, that's cool. um, Which also started their DVD line. They had been doing this with laser discs and stuff before that, but in 1999. Uh And I do kind of relate the Criterion Collection and NYRB Classics. They overlap quite a bit where the book might be the basis for a film that's in the Criterion Collection, or at least some authors works are and there's a lot of connections there but yeah they used to do spine numbers i'm kind of grateful that they don't because you know anymore and i think that was very short-lived i think they had maybe 15 titles that came out that way before they went with their their style that we have now that uniform rainbowish as you said earlier spine and then all these fun covers that are always it's always so fun to see what they're going to choose for their cover image that's what i was going to mention is just beyond everything else they're just gorgeous like on the shelf Mm -hmm. spines only they're gorgeous and then you pull each one out each one has such a cool piece of artwork that often may not directly relate sometimes it does directly relate but it just has the the spirit of the book and i i think it's fascinating what they choose and yeah i mean i just i love them as objects i love the insides yeah Uh, well and sometimes i uh, this is how dorky i am <laughs> they have four or five i think four books by elizabeth taylor that are already out and i love their covers i love these books i love their covers and they are releasing later on this year by the time this episode comes out i think it'll already be published but another elizabeth taylor it's miss palfrey at the claremont mm-hmm. and for a long time on their website it said cover image not available and i i would go on there every other day and just like i want to see what yeah. cover he chose for this <laughs> Uh, they finally did reveal it. Life goes on. I can't wait to have it in my hand because it's just it's just fun. It's it is. just fun. Uh, listeners, I'd love to hear what your experiences with NYRB Classics is or other publishers that you love, you know, that you kind of have that trust with. I, I read widely from a lot of different places. I do follow specific publishers, though, because there is an editorial and curatorial mind behind it often. And I just get to where I can trust them. So... I do appreciate it. I'll also say too, that if you're a backlisted podcast uh, listener, so many of the books they talk about, not all, but a lot of them are books that have been on NYRB Classics uh, Mm -hmm. own uh, list for some time. And so if you listen to a podcast and think, oh, I I trust these people to lead me to good books, you know, you can do this, something similar with a a good publisher. Definitely. And, And one thing that they do that's very dangerous is a few times a year, they'll have these sales where, uh-huh. If you get one book, sales. it's 10%. If you get two books, it's 20%. If you get three <laughs> books, it's 30%. And oh boy, those are dangerous. I, I love watching everybody's piles, you know, when, when the mm-hmm. shipments start coming in and you're like, oh, I'm adding that to my next list. And it's so much fun. It's like Christmas morning. It is. It's And 
it's so fun to see the piles and see what people were drawn to and just kind of get excited. If I, I don't know, it, it is, it's fun. It's fun. And that, that's, that's why we started this podcast is to have fun and, mm-hmm. and to have this good spirit of encouraged reading and, and love for reading. And I, I get that, that giddy joy with, with NYRB oh, classics yeah. books. I do too. <laughs> Definitely. I'm on board. Right, listeners, we're taking just a really quick break in this episode about NYRB Classics for an extremely exciting giveaway opportunity. Paul, I reached out to the folks at NYRB Classics. Uh, they've been good friends of mine for many years now. And I asked them, when are your sales coming up for your fantastic book club subscription? You have subscribed to their book club in the past. Do you want to introduce listeners to what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's wonderful. I've done it for several years now. And basically, you subscribe, and every month you get this wonderful little manila package in the mail that has one of the new books that NYRB releases each month. And as we've talked about in this episode, you know, there's always such a wide variety of great stuff. So to me, it's like, this unexpected Christmas morning once a month. You never know when it's going to come. You never know exactly what's going to be in there, but it's absolutely lovely. So yeah, you get a new book every month from NYRB Classics. Speaking of Christmas, Paul, I think this episode is going to feel like Christmas to somebody. I would hope so, yeah. When I reached out to NYRB Classics to ask them about a sale because I wanted to do this as a giveaway, they turned around and graciously offered to give away an entire year's worth of this uh, book club to some lucky listener without even charging me for it. It's amazing. So yes, listeners, this episode, you have the opportunity to win a year's subscription to NYRB Classics through their book club. (laughs) It's so exciting to me. I've just I know it's about as good as it gets. I am too. (laughs) As I told you, if I if you notice somebody who shows up in a pair of funny glasses and a mustache, don't think anything of it. It's absolutely not me trying to win this prize. (laughs) (laughs) Who is this Paul? Will Sunson. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's certainly not me, so don't think anything of it. Now, this is really exciting. I can't believe they did that. It's an amazing, amazing gesture. I'm very pleased. Again, this is 100% their graciousness. We appreciate it. I hope that it makes someone out there happy and also gets a lot of people excited. And in order to enter this contest, I need you to email me at mooksandgripes at gmail.com. The, the email is in the show notes on your podcatcher, uh, but also I will put on my blog uh, for this episode a link so that you can email me there. Uh, we'll try and make it easy for you to find. If you can't find it, contact me on Twitter at MOOCs, M-O-O-K-S-E. I want as many people to be able to enter this as possible. I don't want someone held up because they can't find my email, even though I've tried to make it readily, readily available as I can. So please email me. And what we're thinking this time, we're not going to give a a trivia question. This is about just being excited. It's that time of year to get excited about books. Not that there's a time of year not to be, but it just, (laughs) you know, this is maybe a little heightened. Mm -hmm. Please send us three of your favorite NYRB Classics titles like we're sharing today. And if you have never read one of their books, please send us a reason why you're interested in reading their books. This is open to everybody. We're not 
going to make any kind of, of trick. I'm not going to be evaluating your choices and deciding who's worthy to enter. Anybody who enters and expresses, the, you know, hey, I'm trying to enter this giveaway. All I ask is that you talk about NYRB Classics in your email, either by sharing your three favorites or by telling us why you're interested in NYRB Classics. And for, for a little bit of a, of a bonus, I am willing to put your name in twice if you also go through NYRB Classics catalog that's coming up, their upcoming releases through the next year, and tell me which one you're most excited about. Mm, that's a so good idea. I will put a link in the show notes for their forthcoming selections so you know what's on their, their catalog. And like I say, all you have to do to enter is you know talk about NYRB Classics in your email to me. But if you want an extra entry, please go through their catalog and tell me what you're most excited about that's coming out over the next year. And that's not, they don't have an entire year up over there, but there's always plenty of choices. There, there's a lot. There's, there's a lot of stuff out there that looks very exciting. I go there, what, maybe, maybe once a day mm-hmm. <laughs> to see what, what might have shown up on their site. And yes, it's very exciting. So Thanks so much to the folks at NYRB Classics for this generous giveaway opportunity. Listeners, get on it. Get entering. Invite friends. Uh, I mean, I know that dilutes your chances, but, <laughs> but come on. This is, this is too exciting. Be, it, it's, it's almost the holiday season. You can be generous. Now, um, when will we be drawing and selecting a winner? We will be doing that on Saturday morning, November 6th. So really and truly, if you want to be safe, get your emails to me by the end of the day, Friday, November 5th, or any time from now until then. You don't have to wait until then. Please please don't. That might be a little overwhelming on, <laughs> on Friday, November 5th. But any time up to then is safe. Of course, if I get one right before we make our drawing selection, I'll still count it. So if it's, if it's the early morning where you're at, Saturday, uh, November 6th, please still enter. But when we sit down to record, it's over. You know, the drawing is closed and we will make our selection. Uh, any last words on this, Paul? No, just like you said, thank you so much to NYRB and good luck, everybody. All right. Well, do you want, should we move into our three books that we chose uh, to, to kind of highlight not our top three, not our favorite three, not anything like that. I just chose three books that I felt comfortable recommending broadly yeah. to folks. I'm ready to go. Okay. Yeah, uh, I, how yeah. did you put your list together? Yeah, very similarly. Similarly, um, I chose three that I just wanted to highlight that I thought they're not obscure by any means. None of, you know, most of these mm-hmm. aren't, especially among listeners. You know, most of you have probably heard of these. But to me, one of the things I tried to take into account is, you and I talk about NYRB in probably every podcast that we've done. And I tried to find some that I hadn't mentioned as much Uh or maybe at all. And then also just ones that I hadn't thought about in in a little while. And in some cases that I kind of wanted to bring back, not only to my own attention, but maybe to anybody out there that, you know, they're not currently buzzing like some of the other ones. And so I thought maybe it might be interesting to try to pull a few of them back out. So that was my general thought. All right. Well, let's, let's hear the first one you want to highlight. All right. I'm going to be curious to see, even among these three, if we end up with any cross-pollination. But we'll... 
I kind of don't think we will. Okay. We, we have not shared our lists. Listen, no. we have no idea. Okay. Well, this is one that I suspect maybe because I think I might have actually heard about it from you, but I don't know. We'll see. My first one is The Vet's Daughter by Barbara Commons. <laughs> All right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I don't know how we did this. I do not know how. Uh, there are there a few years ago, they published their 500th book. Mm hmm. And they've been publishing steadily since. So I'm imagining they're getting closer to 600. You know, I'm sure they've passed 550. How on earth did we get this? And, and I've read a lot of those, a good, a pretty good chunk of those. I know you have too. Yeah. Uh, how do, I mean, this is just a powerful book, right? It is. is yeah, I think that's book. the main thing. I mean, I, I do think that you have been a, a very strong and positive influence on me. So maybe it goes back to some <laughs> something you mentioned in the past. But if nothing else, it's because this book is just... Amazing. I mean, I'll start out a little bit, but why don't we just turn this part into a little bit of a conversation like we've done a few times. So, you know, basically this is told in the first person. It's the story of a 17 year old girl, Alice. She lives with her parents in kind of a dingy London suburb. The first part of the book is pretty realistic and straightforward, but it's definitely grim, has a little bit tinge of tragedy to it for sure. You know, on the cover copy, I was looking at it and Alan Hollinghurst kind of compares it to either Great Expectations or David Copperfield. So it's a young person growing up in less than ideal circumstances. You know, her dad is a veterinarian, as you would guess from the title. Um, Her mother is bedridden with an illness. I believe it's cancer. So, you know, Alice is often kind of left at the mercy of her father, who's very cruel and sometimes even violent. You know, I had a quick passage here that I was going to read, you know. A young boy called Hank helped with the animals now because I had to do most of the cooking and all the shopping and see to mother when Mrs. Churchill had gone home. In spite of the boy's help, I didn't look after father as well as mother used to, and he often hit me because the bacon was burnt or the coffee weak. Once when I'd ironed a shirt badly, he suddenly rushed at me like a charging bull in a thunderstorm, seeming to toss the shirt in some way with his head. I held on to the kitchen sink, too afraid to move. He came right up to me, and I saw the whites of his eyes were all red. He was only wearing his vest and trousers, and was dreadfully hairy. He seized the arms of the shirt, and was trying to tie them round my neck with his great square hands, when the parrot suddenly started to give one of its awful laughs. Father seemed to go all limp, and stumbled from the room, while the parrot went on laughing. You know, I thought that was a good little snippet. That's pretty early on, and it gives kind of the especially the beginning of the book is fairly straightforward with the narrative, but there's this edge of darkness and there is almost bits of like a fairy tale quality to it at times Mm -hmm. that kind of slip in. And so, yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts before I go any further too. This is the third Barbara Cummins book that I read. They NYRB classics has released. Our spoons came from Woolworths. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say that again. Our spoons came from Woolworths as well as the juniper tree, which is, a retelling of the juniper tree fairy tale. And I I read those first and and loved each of them. She has such a unique voice, especially with the the vet's daughter and our spoons came from Walt Woolworths. Mm -hmm. Man, I can't say Woolworths today. (laughs) Um, There's this simplicity of the narrator almost where, and I think this happened where you'd expect words to be misspelled in, in it because it's not, it's not that kind of educated uh, voice, mm-hmm. but there's something so insightful. There's this um, ramping up of the inner life coming through all of that. That just really is is I think where these books get their their strength because you're seeing a life that otherwise might be dismissed, 
and you're seeing its pain, and you're also seeing the very subject dismissing that pain and feeling like they don't belong. And yet, it, and yet it breaks through in, in, in these books that, that, that repressed, suppressed and pushed down an abused voice finally bursts through. And you get a sense of it at the very beginning of the vet's daughter, the way that it starts, it says a man with small eyes and a ginger mustache came and spoke to me when I was thinking of something else. I love she doesn't that. say what she's thinking of. But she's just thinking of something else, and here comes this person. Together we walked down a street that was lined with privet hedges. He told me his wife belonged to the Plymouth Brethren, and I said I was sorry, because that is what he seemed to need me to say, and I saw that he was a poor, broken-down sort of creature. If he had been a horse, he would have most likely worn kneecaps. I, I just love her little insights there and the fact that she's going along with someone she does not want to be with, right. doesn't know who knows what this guy's motives are, mm-hmm. but she's, that's what she seems to be supposed to do. So that's what she's going to do. As we came to a great red railway arch that crossed the road, like a heavy rainbow. And near this arch, there was a vet's house with a lamp outside. I said, you must excuse me and left this poor man among the privet hedges. I don't know why I can't quite articulate it well, why that puts me so much in the mind space of Alice. But in that short passage, we just get a sense of this strong, but forced to be passive, you know, Mm -hmm. forced down uh, persona. Yeah. And the book is, is kind of all about that. And like you say, gets into this fairy tale element that, um, I don't know. If you look at old covers, the the NYRB Classics cover is actually quite dreary and kind of gross. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. But if you look at old covers, you'll see one that's pretty big spoiler for the book. I know. But I love that cover. It just has that 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 quality to it. And yeah, it, it, this is a fantastic, fantastic book. It so is. I'm, I'm glad we both have it. I am too. <laughs> no, I... Um... It's funny because I was going to read a different section, but I, I was a little worried about the spoiler part of it because it is one thing that about her books, and I've read the Juniper Tree in this one, and this is definitely the biggest example of it, but I think it does happen in all of her books from what I've gathered is just there is that straightforward narrative and kind mm-hmm. of what you just, what both of us just read is is one part of the books, but there is that fairy tale part or that oddness, unexplained oddness that is also something that's very appealing to me. I was looking at a review in The Guardian and they described it as tragic, comic, and completely bonkers. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, And they called Commons something of a neglected genius. And I was like, yeah, that's right. So I think that completely bonkers part is something that is easy to maybe overlook initially, but I think that's an important part of it. There's this weirdness and this kind of dark, strange undercurrent that runs through a lot of her books that it's hard to describe, but man, it's fascinating. Well, and it almost with the vet's daughter, that bonkers quality is treated so as as if it's so mundane mm-hmm. by the character herself that you realize how much of this is again. It just kind of emphasizes how much she feels she can't quite engage in in all of the big things going on in her life. Uh, but yeah, I, I adore the the vet's daughter. All right, Paul, you're going to do it again. Uh, what, what's your what's your what's another book you picked? I hope not. The pressure's on now. Um, so the second book, I kind of don't think so. I don't think we've got any more. Okay. That was the one where I kind of thought, oh, we we might. Yeah. But I, I I'll I'll go for. I think we're I think we're done overlapping. Okay. Well, if we do, I'll take all the blame for just you know apparently being a sycophant <laughs> and following all the books that you did. Um, 
the the lonely passion of judith hearn by brian mm. moore oh this book is so good I, and i bought it purely because of the cover i know it's an amazing when i first cover. saw it yeah speaking of the artwork they choose this one is one of the most stunning ones that you mm-hmm. could find so i've read and enjoyed several books by brian moore over the years and honestly i would recommend people just dive in anywhere because i've yet to read anything by him that isn't really good but this is my favorite that i've read so far it tells the story of Judith Hearn. She's a spinster woman described, you know, of a certain age. Very early on, we learn through some masterful descriptions that she kind of moves between rundown and sometimes kind of seedy boarding houses. We don't really get too much insight into why, but then slowly over the course of the book, we start to realize she's come down in society for whatever reason. And, you know, she used to be much in a much different social status. And now she's kind of you know, getting accustomed to this new way of living. Moore does such a wonderful job of just capturing her. She's so complicated and damaged. She's kind of just doing the best she can. But uh, beginning with the very first pages, you know, she's going through her morning routine at the beginning, and there's a few parts that just start to give you a little insight. So each morning, it was her custom to sit conscientiously at the mirror, her head bent to one side, tugging the brush along the thick rope of her hair, counting the strokes thinking of nothing except the act of doing the exercise, her head jerking slightly with each long stroke of the brush. But this morning, hairbrushing actually had to be hurried because it would never do to be late. One's first morning in a new place, especially when there are other boarders to meet. She had said three, Mrs. Henry Rice. Were they men or women? Maybe, most likely men. And what if one were charming? Her angular face smiled softly at its glassy image. Her gaze, deceiving, transforming her to her imaginings, changed the contour of her sallow-skinned face, skillfully refashioning her long-pointed nose on which a small, chilly tear had gathered. Her dark eyes, eyes which skittered constantly in imagined fright, became wide, soft, luminous. Her frame, plain as a cheap clothes rack, filled now with soft curves, developing a delicate line to the bosom. She watched the glass, a plain woman, changing all to the delightful illusion of beauty. There was still time. For her, ugliness was destined to bloom late, hidden first by the unformed gawkiness of youth, budding to plainness in young womanhood, and now flowering to slow maturity in her early forties. It still awaited the subtle garishness which only decay could bring to fruition, the garishness which, when arrived at, would preclude all efforts at the mirror game. So, you know, just so powerful. Um, You know, he does such a good job of just putting you into her mind space. She has so many disappointments in her life. She spends about half of her time trying to pretend it's not happening. But then in these moments like that, where there's this quietness Mm -hmm. where you can just tell that there's some discontent. And then, you know, over the course of the book, it becomes clear that she's starting to use alcohol to deal with this disappointment and sadness. And so it's, it's heartbreaking, but also in a lot of ways, she's a very unappealing character because Brian Moore doesn't hide any of the warts or the snobbiness or some of the different things. But yet some... Yeah, she's not quite like Alice in The Vet's Daughter. No, she's not. Uh, yeah. yeah, or even like, you know, somebody in a Barbara Pym novel. You know, at the beginning, you start to think maybe it's going to be this spinster who is just kind of charming. And, you know, she is some elements of that. But there's there's a darkness to it. And there's some unappealing parts of her personality. But somehow he manages to put you inside of her mind and make her, you know, the seemingly very unsympathetic character very sympathetic yeah. in the end. So I don't know. It's one of my favorite NYRBs I think that I've ever read. And I think about it all the time. Yeah. I, I really like the, that book. 
they have a few other, I think just maybe one other, The Mangan Inheritance by Brian Moore. I haven't read that one yet. I haven't I've either. I've got it on my list to read soon. Mm-hmm. I would love it yeah, if you would be... publish, like you said, how sometimes they'll get onto one author. I would love to see more from him, you know. Well, so speaking of, so Brian Moore was, we're recording this, uh, listeners, on August 21st, 2021, and Brian Moore turns 100. He's passed away, but he would turn 100 on August 25th, 1921. Oh, I didn't realize or, that. Sorry, 2021. He was born on August 25th, 1921. So he's his centenary, centenary is this year. And yeah, it's kind of too bad that there isn't more attention. You know, it doesn't happen to everybody. It happens quite rarely, it seems, nowadays. But yeah, John Self actually posted an article, um, shared an article on Twitter where someone said, hey, in a in a merit-based publishing world, there would be a big line of centenary um, celebration uh, editions of Brian Moore's books. Yeah. And yeah, I know there's a lot more complicated than that you know their rights issues and you've got to they do have to make money if, they, if these aren't making money then they, they, it's not simply just oh these, these deserve it therefore we'll put it out for all i know they would love to have but mm-hmm. couldn't or who knows mm-hmm. um or someone else would have loved to but yes i've i've been going through his books uh slowly because a lot of our friends on on you know from our very first days on the internet mm-hmm. together run like a Brian Moore website, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's the more the merrier and all of that to, to kind of really push his stuff. And they've got me reading him too. Yeah. <laughs> but like I say, I, I, fir- I, I saw that book and, and was taking it to the counter before I even read the title or the author. I just saw the NYRB classics book, saw the cover that this one's coming with me. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> and then I found out it was his, his, uh, his book and, and loved the book too. Well, and it's a good problem to have, but with all these books, you know, we both like to read a little excerpt to give people a taste of it. And I was having trouble. I could have read about half that book out loud because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's beautiful writing. And, and like I said, just these little snippets into these lonely, quiet lives. I mean, that's one thing I will say the vet's daughter and, and this one have in common is just lives that would be easy to ignore and you get these little windows into them. And that's some of my favorite types of, of literature. Oh, I was going to say, I'm going to try and change it up a little bit here, but there is an aspect of that in my next choice. Um, so Robert Valser mm. is one of those authors that when I came to, to know him, I knew he would be an all-time favorite. Susan Bernofsky published a biography of Valser earlier this year uh, called Clairvoyant of the Small because of how, I mean, that's a that's a phrase um, W.G. Sebald used to describe Valser. Uh, clairvoyant of the small, the way that he can write these mini uh, snippets. I mean, he's got some novels, and I first I first came to know him through the Tanners that uh, that New Directions published. Uh, but he's got a lot of short stories, and he's got a lot of like little tiny articles, just this little. I mean, they're they're microscripts that he that he put together, but also just little snippets that he's writing throughout his life. Oftentimes when he bursts out in the morning, you know, he seemed to just have a well of energy in the mornings to this new day, you know, enters out into the city of Berlin and Berlin stories. And, and I think he says, good morning, goddess, you know, he's (laughs) just, just this burst of energy, but there's so much, um, there, there is a, a tinge of melancholy. And especially if you know, is where he ends up and, and kind of his story, it's hard to ignore that in his writing, but earlier this year, they came out with another um, compilation of his of his 
little stories and little, I don't know, I don't even know what they call them, little essays. And I thought, oh, I'm excited. There's a new Valser coming out. Probably his lesser stuff. You know, they've already published several books by him and compilations. This must just be the scraps. Oh, man, I, I loved this one, maybe even more than any of the others. It's a Little Snow Landscape, and I love the cover. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, I, I do love oh, the cover of it. And the very first little snippet, which I'm going to read in its entirety because it's very short, just blew me away and made me excited to get back into Valser. He wrote this in 1905. He's fairly young, and it's called To My Home. The sun shines through the little hole into the little room where I am sitting and dreaming. The bells of my homeland chime. It is Sunday, and on Sunday it is morning, and in the morning the wind is blowing, and in the wind all my cares fly away like shy birds. I feel too much the harmonious nearness of home to be able to brood over any sorrow. In the past I wept. I was so far away from my native country. So many mountains, lakes, forests, rivers, fields, and ravines lay between me and her, the beloved, the admired, the adored. This morning she embraces me, and I lose myself in her voluptuous caress. No woman has such soft, such imperious arms. No woman, not even the most beautiful, such tender lips. No woman, not even the most tender, kisses with such infinite ardor as my native land kisses me. Ring bells, play wind, roar forests, glow colors, and it's all embodied in the single sweet kiss of my homeland that in this moment captivates my language in the sweet, infinitely delicious kiss of home. Now, you can critique that from several different perspectives. You can critique the, you know, the the ardorous love for his homeland. Right. You can critique some of the weird kissy, you know, whatever. But the part that I love is the the energy and that's how he writes is this this booming energy this this blasting out there and especially when he gets into this little whimsical stuff like it is sunday and on sundays it is morning mm-hmm. i don't know there's just something about the way he says that 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 i, I love and, and a lot of his stuff is is that way but again and i didn't pick out any to read today you know, he talks in here, though, about his sorrows and his cares and trying to push them away or or they go away. As you read more Walser, you, you come to realize that's wishful thinking. This is this energy is in a, in part, it seems to me, a desire mm-hmm. to get away from what's really troubling him. It, it comes out often. You know, there, there's even in this in this in this particular volume, there is a section where he's talking about how tiring it is sometimes to have that kind of attitude but still finding this joy and and seeking that solace in the little things what is around me yeah is what it will bring me peace and 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 happiness and, and joy even if it's a little bit a little bit elusive still and so I, I love Walser's work, and, and I loved this particular edition translated uh, by Tom Whalen. A lot of these are translated by Susan Bernofsky, like the, the Walser, Walser works that they have in, in their collection. But it's a lot with Susan Bernofsky. Christopher Middleton is someone that I've uh, relied a lot, a lot on to get these a bit by Damien Searles. And then, but like I say, this one and several of the others, Tom Whalen. So a lot of people doing good work to keep bringing us his, his stuff because he wrote a lot. Um, before he he went into a sanatorium yeah 
but yeah, little snow landscape, just, just a lot of richness, a lot of, a lot of, uh, unique insights into kind of a deep, um, sad personality behind it all that nevertheless is invigorating and comforting. <laughs> yeah. No, there's something so admirable about somebody where you, like you said, you kind of know the end. And so you, you have some insight into what's going on, but to see them living their lives like that and, and seeking out the beautiful things and, and trying to build this passion for life, you know, there's something mm-hmm. very, uh, you know, kind of admirable, but also kind of haunting about that, you know, just knowing the whole story and yeah, no, that's beautiful. I have to admit he's one, we talk about those holes in our reading, no matter how much you read, there's those holes. He's one I do not, mm-hmm. I've never read a single word by him. I, I own the Tanners and Schoolboy schoolboys diary, the NYRB version, but I have not yet read anything by him. Sounds wonderful. There's a lot. There's a lot. In fact, uh, NYRB, one of their books that I most treasure is his collected stories mm. or selected stories. I don't remember what exactly it's called. That's out of print from NYRB, but you can still get it, I think, from FSG. And that's very worthwhile. Those are tremendous. Um, the walk you would find. Okay, here's where here's where I'd recommend you start. Right, this is what I need. And, and New Directions put out one of their little pearl editions. I don't know if it's still in that edition or not, but of of one called The Walk. Okay, it's very short, and I think you get that. I think you get a lot of the what I love about him in that. Uh, particular uh, little story. Great. So yeah. there, there, there's my recommendation, uh, I, but uh, you could start anywhere. Uh, it's good to know. <laughs> I have a whole, I don't know about you, but this podcast is dangerous, just like Twitter and everything else where I have this whole list of like <laughs> adding to my list of books to buy. So I'll add that one. Too. Well, the, even, even, even if it all just comes into the conversation, yeah. it's still it's fun. Absolutely. So whether you get to it or not someday. Right. Well, we're, we need to hustle. Let's hear what your, your third book is. All right. My third book um, is a bit of a cheat because it's actually three books, but it's the Balkan Trilogy by <laughs> Olivia Manning. I wondered if you'd pick yeah. that because I, I knew you just loved it. Yeah, I did. And and this was one, my first kind of group read that I've ever done on social media took place earlier this year with Kim McNeil and quite a few other folks. And so it was lots of fun. This was one of those that was probably might've been on my bucket list books if if I hadn't gotten to it. So the group read kind of gave me that little kick I needed to to go ahead and jump into it. And yeah, it's, it's so fun. Made up of three books, The Great Fortune, which came out in 1960, The Spoilt City, 1962, and Friends and Heroes, 1967. So it's basically telling the story of this young couple, Harriet and Guy, during the early years of World War II. And apparently it's got a pretty strong autobiographical element to it, um, based on Manning herself and her husband. So, you know, the first book opens with them traveling through Europe towards Romania. They're on a train. You know, they've just married. It was this big whirlwind romance um, over their summer vacation. They're traveling to Bucharest, where Guy has a job with the British Council at their English department. So, you know, he is a lecturer. He's a communist. He's very passionate. He's one of those guys has so much energy and passion that he pulls students and other people to him. He's just a magnetic personality. Meanwhile, Harriet, you know, she loves him, but she's starting to realize what she got into. And she has a very different personality. You know, they're very different people. And that comes out more and more throughout the books. So, you know, his charisma draws in all these different people and exposes her to people maybe otherwise she wouldn't have dealt with. And so there's this passion or there's this, uh, sorry, this section here that I was going to read that just gives a really good insight into this tension that builds between this extrovert who's so passionate and then Harriet kind of getting pulled along in his wake and kind of having to deal with all of that. And I think all of us introverts out here can probably relate a little bit. So 
She says, you brought him here. You must get rid of him. And he says, it's a difficult situation. I was glad to have him here while he was rehearsing. He worked hard and helped to make the show a success. In a way, I owe him something. I can't just tell him to go now the show's over, but it's different for you. You can be firm with him. What you mean is if there's anything unpleasant to be done, you prefer that I should do it? Cornered, he reacted with rare exasperation. Look here, darling, I have other things to worry about. Sasha, Sasha is up on the roof. Yakimov's not likely to see him and probably wouldn't be interested if he did see him, so why worry? Now I must go back and talk to Toby. She let him go, knowing nothing more would be gained by talk. And she realized it would always be the same. If action had to be taken, she would have to be the one to take it. That was the price to be paid for a relationship that gave her more freedom than she had bargained for. Freedom, after all, was not a basic concept of marriage. As for Guy, he did not want a private life. He chose to live publicly. She said to herself, he's crassly selfish, an accusation that would have astounded his admirers. She went over to the window and leant out. Looking down the drop of nine floors to the cobbles below, she thought of the kitten that had fallen from the balcony five months before. The scene dissolved into a marbling of blue and gold as her eyes filled with tears, and she suffered again the outrageous grief with which she had learnt of the kitten's death. It had been her kitten. It had acknowledged her. It did not bite her. She was the only one who had no fear of it. Possessed by memory of the little, red, golden flame of a cat that for a few weeks had hurtled itself, a ball of fur and claws about the flat, she wept. My kitten. My poor kitten. Feeling she had loved it as she could never love anything or anybody. Guy, after all, did not permit himself to be loved in this way. So, whew, I mean, it just a lot of the book is taking place on a big stage. You know, there's grand events happening. There's Nazis and there's World War II. And it's all sweeping through these world-changing, you know, events. But I think within that, this this quiet person and just the way that um, Manning is able to kind of capture these little insights creates a great balance between the two. And so there's a whole Dickensian kind of cast of characters, tons of people involved. But then there's these moments of quiet mm -hmm. as well that I... I don't know. I thought it was just amazing. It's it's a really good series of books and it's a page turner in many ways, but there's also that depth to it that I really appreciated. Yeah, I, I love that trilogy. We did a podcast on it with, uh, I think it was one we did with Nick During from NYRB Classics oh. back in the day. In fact, it's one I remember well. I'm sitting in this room and and as you're, as you're reading, I'm flashback to you know, this room didn't look the same as, as it did mm -hmm. when I recorded that episode, but I remember I was back on that side recording. Oh, that's kind of interesting how that happens. Yeah. Are you, are you going to move on to the Levant trilogy? I was going to say that. I mean, yeah, I am. I have, uh, I have the Levant trilogy, although this is one of those areas where the NYRB is so dangerous because I have one from a different publisher and they don't match, you know, so that's really bugging me. <laughs> um, no, I need to, I need to move uh, on to that one because they have that gorgeous edition. Well, yeah, you just you, you, so you don't have the NYRB Classics Levant Not trilogy. Levant. We need to get that for you. That's you can't. You've got to read the NYRB. I mean, yeah, we're doing this podcast. You've read it. The, That's right. <laughs> you need the you need them to be uniform. Yeah. I think you'll love it just as much, and you that'll always bug you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. I'm with you. And like I said, that's the problem. Some of these books, you have a copy of another one, but then NYRB has one or, or they come out with a new one and you're like, well, you know, mm -hmm. I can't have that mismatch copy. That's not going to do so. I know <laughs> it's silly. It shouldn't matter. It does. But it does. And that's okay. Simon Thomas, uh, one of our friends, you know, does the Tier Books podcast. Mm -hmm. We did a podcast together a, a while back. 
and I can't remember what we did it on. Anyway, in that, he said, it's okay. You can have multiple copies of the same book. They're different. There's different parts of you that are satisfied by this. That's a, that's a great way of saying it. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. It is okay. Thanks, Simon. Exactly. Thank, thanks. My whole, my whole family thanks you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will pull out my third book that I'm going to recommend. And it is Memoirs from Beyond the Grave. 1768 to 1800 this is just part of the memoirs from beyond the grave and it's a pretty thick pretty thick uh thick book by francois rené de chateaubriand this just you know i i I get review copies and this one showed up and i was immediately drawn in by the the title memoirs from beyond the grave by the cover which is a photograph of niagara falls in the moonlight taken in 1900 just gives this nice feel but I opened it up and as I'm wont to do, just thought, oh, I'll get a, I'll get a sense. And here's what I found. This is the preface by Chateaubriand, written in 1846. So he he is, you know, this 18, or 1768 to 1800. This is stuff he put together quite a bit later on in life, though he wrote it as his life was going on. He says, as it is impossible for me to predict the moment of my death, and at my age, the days accorded a man are but days of grace, or rather days of rigor. I am going to offer a few words of explanation. On September 4th, I will have reached my 78th year. It is high time for me to leave a world that is fast leaving me and that I shall not mourn. The same sad necessity, which has always held its foot against my throat, has forced me to sell these memoirs. No one can know what I have suffered, having been obliged to pawn my tomb. But I owed this final sacrifice to my solemn promises and to the consistency of my conduct. It is perhaps cowardly of me, but I have regarded these memoirs as private, and I would have liked not to part with them. My plan was to leave them to Madame de Chateaubriand, who could have sent them out into the world as she pleased or else suppressed them. The latter seems more preferable to me than ever today. Uh, if only before leaving this world I could have found someone trustworthy enough, someone rich enough to buy back the shares of the society, someone who would not, like them, be compelled to put my work to press the moment my death knell tolls. <laughs> a few of my, the shareholders are my friends, it's true, and several others are kind people who have tried to be of use to me, but finally the shares may be sold. They may be transferred to the third parties whom I do not know and whose family interests must come first. It is only natural that my life, so long as it continues, should be an importunity to them, or at least a bother. In short, if I were still master of these memoirs, I would either keep the manuscript to myself or delay their publication until 50 years after my death. And he keeps going. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to actually have these out there. I don't want you to read them. I love his voice. On the back of the book, I think they nailed it, whoever wrote this copy. A self-deprecating egotist. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that is so so true about this 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 man. You know, these are his memoirs, and they start when he's young. And I I love this book. It was so much fun. It took me forever to read mm-hmm. it because it's it's pretty thick, but it's and it's kind of done in pieces. Like you can you can dip into it and, and just keep going. But guess what? When this came out, I I got some people tweeting me saying. Psh, what are they doing? That's not the whole memoirs from beyond the grave because it says it's unabridged. Mm. They're like, no, no, there's, there's more. And it's true. There is more. This section is unabridged 1768 to 1800. And you know, that came out quite a few years ago and I didn't expect to see any more, but next year, next June, 
they are coming out with Memoirs from Beyond the Grave, 1800 to 1815. Oh, great. And I I can't wait because... <laughs> It's he's so, so I just, I love this guy. I'm, pr- I'm probably going to reread this one before it comes out because I, I loved it so much. And just to get back into, into his life and capture when he, when we get to 1800, I think he's only in his thirties in the year 1800. So, you know, there's got a lot more to go still. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a blast. It's, it, it's powerful. There's a lot of, you know, he, there's a solemnity to, to the whole thing, but I just love how he, I'm putting this out there because my dang friends in the society are making me <laughs> and I'd rather, you know, I had any money, but uh, oh, right. you know, just here you go. Here you go. <laughs> That's funny. So when that second volume comes out, is that going to be then the entire thing or is there a third or do you know? I don't, I don't know. It seems like there might be a third okay. because, or maybe even a fourth or a fifth, mm-hmm. because this only goes up to 1815. Wow. And, you know, he's writing this little preface to the whole thing in 1846. So that's another 30 years beyond that. And I have not looked close enough to see if he, if this really does go several volumes through his life. I kind of hope so. Yeah. Judging uh, by how thick it, that first one is, if so, that guy, I mean, either way, he's very prolific. I mean, that's a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of writing and a lot of well, insights. He wrote, he wrote a lot of other, st- uh, he was kind of a man about town. I mean, he met with a lot of famous people. Yeah. Hunting with King Louis the Sixteenth at Versailles. Uh, witnessing the first heads carried on pikes through the streets of Paris, meeting with George Washington in Philadelphia. I mean, this is just an exciting, like this is, this is kind of um, a good old fashioned adventure story too, or, or what what do they call them? What are the, oh shoot. You know, Barry Lyndon's kind of a a type of this novel, this picaresque mm -hmm. novel. Uh, There we go. That's kind of what this is like almost like this, this development of a, of a guy who's thrown about by history and seems to be everywhere at once and, and has a really big attitude. <laughs> it's kind of the opposite That's of all fun. those quiet lives we were talking about earlier, at least in, uh-huh. you know, in the scope of it. So yeah, I guess our last two books, the Balkan trilogy and that one, you know, we, we broadened out the lens a little bit. <laughs> well, it's, which is fair. We certainly have our tastes mm-hmm. and it would be dangerous to, to suggest that the books we talk about, from NYRB classics represent them fully. Oh, yeah. But yeah, there's so much fun. Well, well, we were going to end this episode, not by giving honorable mentions, because again, we'll, we'll revisit this, but Paul, at your suggestion, what are three that we want to read next? Yeah. And uh, go, go ahead. What, okay. what are the three you, you, you chose? Yeah. Speaking of a difficult task, because this is another one that could have been about mm-hmm. 20 different ones. I, but yeah, the three that I came up with are a high wind in Jamaica by Richard Hughes mm. Heaven's Breath, A Natural History of the Wind by Lyle Watson. Speaking of kind of their eclectic nature, you know, something that you wouldn't necessarily think about. And then the third one was Season of Migration to the North by Taeb Salih. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. So those are three, um, especially A High Wind in Jamaica and Season of Migration to the North. I picked them up a long time ago and they keep sitting there looking at me and they're ones that I've been meaning to get to. I know they both come highly recommended from a lot of people. Hmm. And then Heaven's Breath just came out more recently, and that one just sounds fascinating to me. Very encyclopedic look at, at the wind. So, yeah, like we were just saying, talk about three very different books, all from the same publisher, that all just sound wonderful to me. All right, I don't. We've never wanted to do this officially, but if you start reading uh, High Wind in Jamaica, mm-hmm. 
I'm in the same boat. I think that was one of the first NYRB classics that I bought, and I still haven't read yeah. it. So if you start it, I will I will dive okay. in and we'll, and we'll do that deal. together. <laughs> All right. The three that I chose, I, I first chose Elizabeth Taylor's A View of the Harbor because, again, they're releasing Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont here in, you know, pretty soon. And I've still not read this one. And I, the reason I haven't read it is because I'm so excited to read it mm-hmm. <laughs> that I, I want to, like, save it for some reason. But I, I have it on my list of things to read. I love the I, I adore this cover, by the way. Me too. Uh, if you had a chance to look at that, another one that I chose is another another chunky one, the Kolima Stories by Varlam Shalomov. This is the first. This there's they've released another one that's just as thick. More Kolima Stories is is what it is. And what this is is he he's a survivor of the Russian Gulag and this and the Kolima Russian Gulag and. This is a bunch of short fictional tales that go through that time. I can't quite wrap my mind around it. I have not read it yet, but it's one that I want to, I feel like I I need to and want to, to dig into. And then I also uh, picked out uh, Natalia Ginsburg's Family Lexicon because mm-hmm. earlier this year I started reading her books. I think I've read four or five of them and I've, I've, I've loved them. So it's time to get back to her and to Family Lexicon, which is one of her, one that comes with the most reputation behind Definitely. it. I don't know if it's her best, but certainly one that that I think um, I'm going to enjoy. So those were the three that I that I chose. That one could have been on my list too because I read a couple of her books earlier this year, and yeah, she's wonderful. And to your point, that one seems to come up most often. So it's definitely one that I'd like to get to soon. By the way, I think I asked you this, but do you have Family in Borgesia on your shelf? Do you have that one? I don't yet? have that one. Okay, I've got one here for oh. you. I'll, I'll say, I think I asked you if, if you had it and was going to send it to you. I haven't sent it yet. Clearly, it's sitting right yeah. here. It'll be on its way oh, to you, so you can have you can add to that. That's exciting. Something to look forward to. So, thank you. There we go. Yeah. I think I have a few more here that I'll be able to throw in there too. That I'll check on with you. Um, as we exchange books, yeah. Paul and I are want to do sometimes. Absolutely. So. <laughs> fun, fun, fun stuff. stuff. Well, Paul, we, we often end with a, just a short recommendation. Mm-hmm. I be, I'll be honest with you. I didn't even think about that today. I was so excited to talk NYRB classics. It's only now as we're sitting down and thinking that how do we close these things usually yeah. that I realized that I left that off of my task list. No problem. But did you have something you wanted to talk? I mean, about? I can just touch on it briefly. I guess we can make our big recommendation just, Anybody who's not already who doesn't already have a shelf full of NYRB classics, go out there and start exploring because it's great. But I did have one that I was just it, this is not going to be anything obscure, but I recently rewatched Roman Holiday, that wonderful oh, movie, uh-huh. you know, with Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck. And I watched it probably about six months ago. And then I did something I almost never do. And I watched it again maybe a month or two later because I just loved it so much. I'd never seen it before the first time. And it just it it ticks all the boxes. It's so, you know, Audrey Hepburn, you, you know, everybody knows about her, but she just, every time she's on the screen, you, you can't help but just stare at her and listen to her. She's so amazing. But the whole, the whole thing is just such a wonderful, it's, it's a romp. It's an adventure, but it's not just that. I, I was surprised by the depth and little bits of melancholy and sadness that are mixed into it that make it much more than what I was thinking it might be. So this one probably doesn't need much, you know, introduction or anything like that, but whether you've never seen it before or whether it's been a while, I would just suggest checking it out. It's on Criterion Channel. Um, I don't know. It's lovely. I love it. 
I love that one too. My wife and I watched it several, you know, a couple decades ago now, it seems mm-hmm. not quite that long. And yeah, I just remember sitting there thinking that was magical. And one of my sons, I came home one day and he'd put it in the DVD player and was watching it and was enjoying wow. it. And I thought, what is going on? That was actually several years ago too. It's time. Thanks for the recommendation for me too, because that, that sounds like a lovely way to spend an August or one of these fall evenings mm-hmm. is going to Rome and uh, with Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, it's, it's so. beautiful. I loved it. Wonderful. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. Thanks, listeners. We will see you here in a couple of weeks. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can find Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month, helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a patron at patreon.com mooks. Until next time.